Hey, I'm Danny Heifetz, host of the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. Me, Danny Kelly, and Craig Horlbeck are coming to you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday before this NFL season so you can crush your draft and win your league, or at least make sure you don't come in last place and have to do your league's punishment. Follow the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, from superchargers and brakes to exhaust kits and beyond, eBay Motors levels your baby up to its peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome to the Ringer Wrestling Show, Heels, Season 2, Episode 2. Wait, what's this episode called, Ben? <laughs> it's called The Journey is the Obstacle. The Journey is the Obstacle. That's the voice of Ben Lindbergh there, my co-host on this journey, chronicling yes. the entire second season of Can't the Star Show Heels. Can't remove me from this card on a technicality. <laughs> I'll be back every week. <laughs> um, well, we'll see how things go. We have a big interview <laughs> with the episode's director, Pete Siegel, who directed a ton of season one as a huge driving creative force in the show. Uh, it was amazing to talk to him. So that'll be after Ben and I have a little conversation about this episode. Before we get into it, I do need to mention the comments that star of Heels, Stephen Amell, has made um, about the actor strike over the past several days. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the first quote that came out was, uh, I support my union, I do, and I stand with them, but I do not support striking. I don't. I think that's a, ne a reductive negotiating tactic, and I find the thing incredibly frustrating. He went on to clarify uh, in, in, I think, a video and a post um, what he meant. Uh, yeah, this is, obviously, we're not a part of the strike and, 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 uh, and shouldn't claim to have any inside knowledge. I know that a lot of people associated with the show are just frustrated that they are because of the strike, not allowed to promote the show. They can't do interviews on podcasts like this or whatever. I'm sure that's frustrating for them. But in terms of the content of the comments, it's something that we actually discussed internally before we started the, the, the review podcast. And it's tough, but we're going to keep reviewing the show because we love the show and hopefully keep the political slant separate from uh, most of these conversations. Yeah, of course, we're not part of the production. We're not influencers. We're media members. We're journalists. We can talk about these series. I understand the frustration when you have a show that is, uh, you know, needs every bit of promo it can get. Probably, obviously, we're rooting for this series to succeed. Of course, when you are in a union and your union is striking, that's where the concept of solidarity comes in, <laughs> right? And not breaking ranks so predictably, understandably. He was uh, sort of pilloried for those comments and kind of walked them back. You know, we wondered, is he, is he cutting a promo here? Is this like a heels style heel turn to try to generate some heat for the show? I don't think so. This is uh, probably ill-advised. It got some attention for him and for the show, but not the right kind of attention. 
obviously, if you're in that union, you want a unified message, you want a unified front, which we support. So writers, actors on strike, not allowed to promote their series. Directors, not on strike, allowed to promote the series, which is why we will be talking to a director later in this episode. It's just uh, the weird way things work sometimes. All right, well, let's talk about this show. Yeah. Season two, episode two. This was much more of a straightforward, just, you know, propulsive episode of television than episode one, which Mm -hmm. we talked about previously in this very feed. We picked up right where the last episode left off, kind of in the uh, afterglow of Crystal's quote-unquote victory and Duffy Wrestling trying to sort of, Jack Spade in particular, trying to plot the path forward, still in the absence of his brother Ace, who we will get to later. This was an episode that was largely about the creative process, right? And about and and and, and all of the extra, extraneous concepts that go into that, right? There's a lot of it about about paying bills, uh, paying wrestlers, about um, letting the letting the sponsors know what they could expect. You know, I mean, just the and that a lot of that's obviously embodied in Willie. I don't know what was your big takeaway from this episode. And let's well, we'll I mean, listen, spo- spoilers are allowed but we can hit on the, the the finale, the final scene all at once in just a minute, I guess. But up until then, what's, what was your big takeaway? Yeah, at first I had to remind myself, oh, the fair was last night <laughs> when yeah. we're watching this episode, right? Just because the choice to make the premiere of this season mostly flashback, it feels like more time has passed since uh, that big moment for the DWL. But in fact, it was uh, in the immediate past for these characters. So they're still dealing with the ramifications and the fallout from that good and bad. So last time we wondered where is Ace off to with King Spade's crown, right? And here we have some sense of that. He is wandering in the wilderness, uh, both physically and metaphorically, and in the great outdoors or the not-so-great outdoors by the end of the episode, he has probably decided ill-equipped for that world. And meanwhile, Jack is on one on this episode, right? So it's sort of the moment of triumph for the DWL, but he's not able to savor that triumph because... Bills are due, right? People are calling to collect. Ace is AWOL. He's obviously in some issues in his personal life, I guess, uh, ironically, the same week that Emel got himself in hot water with his strike comments. Uh, Jack Spade is spouting off to Stacy and Thomas's school, mm-hmm. right? And stepping in it himself constantly. So we wondered about that storyline to this season. Is he going to go down the dark road of Tom Spade and and repeat his father's sins and mistakes? And here he is uh, figuratively and, and literally wrestling with that, right? But kind of comes back from the brink, I guess, at the end in that he's able to give Crystal her deserved moment in the spotlight instead of stripping that title belt away from her. So to me, there's two big shocking moments to the show. And, you know, we can we can categorize this if you want, but we'll give the awards out formally later on. One was the the finish. The last scene of the show, or relatively speaking, the last scene of the show shows Ace, who has decided just to go camping. There's no there's no deeper mystery as far as we know to his absence. He's just going camping in a very wild part of Georgia um, that does not take kindly to campers and, you know, windbreakers, soccer shoes, tennis shoes, yeah. soccer shoes. <laughs> And he falls off a cliff and plummets to his, not death, but he's obviously incredibly injured and is screaming uh, mm-hmm. for someone to help him. 
Yeah, wow. turnabout is is fair play, I guess. Here, clutching his his potentially broken leg, much like uh, mm-hmm. Bobby Pin was at Ace's hands. Exactly, and that was one to me as a fan of the show. I was frankly even more shocked when Jack decided to strip Crystal of the World Championship or of the of the, the, the DWL Championship belt as if it were nothing. Not just taking it away. But taking mm-hmm. it away all, seemingly without really thinking that deeply about it. Was that moment as sort of jaw-dropping to you as it was to me? It was, and obviously it was to Crystal as well, because she followed him quickly to protest that decision. Mm-hmm. I guess they're taking some heat from rivals online, right? And uh, the technicality of Crystal not actually being a participant in that match until she yeah. inserted herself into it. But obviously that got a pop, right? She's a star. The crowd responded to that. You'd think that he would want to ride that, but it's kind of, uh, did she earn it? Did she put in her time, right? I think maybe the most interesting aspect of this episode is Willie, who is, I think, a great character and kind of a flawed character and a, a wrestling lifer, right? And so she goes after Crystal when Crystal gives Jack a piece of her mind. And she's basically telling her, hey, you're jumping the line here. And she's saying that from the perspective of someone who says, I've lost my life to this business, right? She doesn't say I've given my life to this business. I've lost lost my my life. life. One of the the great lines of a very well-written episode of TV. Yeah, there's some bitterness there. And coming up when she did, we have some sense of her backstory. We know that she was Wild Bill's valet, and then she sort of changed sides. We don't know the full backstory. I hope that we get it at some point this season or this series, but it's Interesting advice that she's giving to Crystal, because, of course, if Crystal had followed Willie's advice from the start, she wouldn't be where she is. Right. Willie's whole stance was, hey, this locker room is for wrestlers. Right. You don't belong here. Crystal has gotten what she's gotten because she deserves it and she's put in the time and she knows wrestling. But no one has handed that to her. Right. She has had to seize the mic herself and kind of cut the line because no one was going to give that to her. So when Willie is giving her that tough love and saying, hey, you're not ready yet. You need to develop a character here. We don't know who you are. You need to work on your ring presence. Do you have the stamina to last? I think she has a point and Crystal takes that to heart. And yet maybe in a way she's perpetuating these old barriers that she herself encountered that Crystal has kind of hopped over by taking the initiative and in this league that does not cater to female wrestlers or even female fans necessarily, she has carved out a place for herself basically by saying, hey, I'm I'm here and I'm not going to go away. We talked about it last week, but one of the things that really makes the show so compelling is the way that it's a show within a show, but also like a show within a show within a show. This could go in a lot of different directions. I know you're on edge waiting to see where I'm going to go with this. <laughs> um, But outside of the ring, far, far away from the ring, there is a sequence where uh, where Jack and Stacy are at their son Tom's school because he's punched somebody and gotten suspended. Right. Um, And Jack goes into a long, beautiful discourse about the place of violence in our society. (laughs) Clearly, it's a commentary on Jack. It's a commentary on where pro wrestling sits in our society. But it also says a lot about the relationship that, you know, between Jack and his estranged wife and how, you know, Jack is clearly more interested in cutting promos at some on some level than in reconciling. What was your big takeaway from that? 
love to show up to a meeting with the principal and the school psychologist to talk about my kid punching people with a black eye myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a great look. And no, the makeup didn't do much to camouflage that. I mean, I think it's just sort of symbolic of how his life is, is spiraling a little out of control here, that the ring persona is crossing over into real life, that the family demands, the economic pressures are all kind of coming to a head here at what should be a big moment for the DWL. Obviously, he has this personal conflict with Stacy going on. And, you know, when he's in his office, in his inner sanctum at the Dome, Tom Spade's name is still on the door, right? It's still sort of Spade's league and legacy. And that is looming over Jack. And he hasn't completely carved out his own way of doing things. And we saw that Tom Spade, King Spade, was not able to separate those things and was not able to prevent that darkness from taking over. And that's the big question with Jack now. Can he do it? Can he find his way back, as he said, to the man he used to be? It's almost as if, just watching this episode, that he's managed to separate them, but not, but in the opposite way, right? Mm. That, like, he, he walked, when he walks into the office after his parking lot uh, argument with his wife, while Bill comes in and says, hey, I'm here to help, and Jack just kind of blows up at him. Just like, if right. you're going to come and give me another lecture, then just, like, get that fuck out of here or whatever. Yeah. But then by the time he, by the, after they talk, by the time he walks back into the locker room to tell the guys what's going on, he's like a last second you coach, man. I mean, last chance you coach. He's just <laughs> right. walking in with like this great motivational attitude, getting everybody going. It's like being in charge of the show. He's figured out how to do that. But the rest of the rest of his life is what's crumbling. Right. Yes. I mean, and, and, and it's that's kind of taking the brunt of it. Right. Yeah. He's putting on a brave face in front of the roster. Right. And he's not using his inside voice in this episode very often. You know, it's almost like he's he's constantly cutting a promo at all times. There are times where it's like, dial it down a little, Jack. I guess that's always who he's been. He's grown up around this wrestling world. But he is kind of having to to code switch a little bit, right? When he goes from one milieu to another and the school principal and psychologist meeting is a lot different from the atmosphere at the Dome, which is maybe one of their concerns about Thomas is that rubbing off a little bit too much on him, right? But he's occupying these very different worlds where it's the home life, it's school, it's uh selling, you know, equipment to mow your lawn, right? And having to be a good salesman in a completely different way than when you're selling a wrestling match, right? So he is wrestling and, and juggling with a lot of things at once. Uh, you're talking about code switching at the beginning of the, I mean, Jack, in case, I don't even know if we mentioned it last week, but Jack's day job, he has to have a day job, is that he sells mm-hmm. lawnmowers, uh, yeah. commercial lawnmowers for the most part. And he he's almost misses a meeting as this show opens to what sell to the school the the the, the school board the or county whatever. yeah yeah right. county mm-hmm. um and as he's as he's on the way there his wife is on he's talking to his wife Stacy on the phone and she says you know Jack don't worry you sell more lawnmowers than anybody there and his response is beautiful it's chisel that on my gravestone <laughs> right. uh, which is great and a show that's that's largely about legacy you know what we leave behind that's just a incredibly sort of poignant joke such as it is to tell this was i said it before i mean this was uh an incredibly well written episode of tv just line by line i mean there were every scene had i has a line that i you know paused and, and wrote down and some of them were just hilarious and some of them were just poignant uh really smart which i think is on an episode like this where there's just a lot of repetition right i mean it's we're we're, we're 
Jack walks into the locker room with the boys at least two times in the episode, right? How many times are we listening to an answering machine message that Jack's leaving for Ace or that Ace is listening to? You know, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of circular motion. The conversations, such as the one with Kristen, sort of have to recur, you know, so with Willie, have to recur so that they, they kind of resolve. It's just so much of the show is just so well written. It's that it, it really is. It, it's really an impressive feat to keep this yeah. as alive as it is. Yeah. And when we meet Jack in this episode, he's sleeping on the couch, which is interesting, right? He's almost like living the, the bachelor life or he is in the doghouse in a sense. There was a, a episode in season one where Stacy goes out and sleeps on the couch while Jack stays in the bed when they're having a fight here. Stacy has vacated the premises. He could occupy the bed, but it's like he feels displaced from that. The family is broken up for now. And his day job is not his vocation, right? He's doing that out of just duty to support his family. The DWL is where his passion and real obligation lies. Did want to talk about Stacy just for a second because Please. she has legitimate gripes, I think, right? I mean, I guess you could say this this might seem somewhat abrupt, just Jack wrestling with his demons here, Stacy moving out. I think it's been building for a while, though. We joined that conflict in progress, but this isn't all about the tissues and, and the Kleenex and the stunt with Ace. That's part of it, I think. But we see, you know, he's been neglecting his family in some ways. He's been prioritizing the DWL, which he tells himself and tells Stacy is for them. But it's for him sometimes, too. He's prioritizing oh, yeah. himself, right? And, and you know, instead of taking her to Machu Picchu, he's buying fog machines, right? And instead of going out and uh, bottling some fireflies, he's writing the script. And he's out uh, selling lawnmowers instead of mowing his own family's lawn here, right? So you can see why she's fed up. I think it's sometimes a, a thankless role. It's almost like the, the Skylar White kind of role in Breaking Bad, where there could be almost this uh, sort of sexist backlash to the character who's like ruining the the male problematic protagonist's fun, you know, stop making him do the thing that we like to watch him do, even though he's the transgressor. He's the one who's doing something wrong here. And she she's just standing up for the family. Now, I'm not saying Jack Spade is Walter White. <laughs> I'm just saying that she has a point. And I hope that her story, you know, I hope when we see Stacy. It's not only when she's berating Jack. I hope she's doing her own thing at times, too. You know, yeah. I don't know that we need the series to turn into American Idol Stacy edition, right? I mean, the show is about wrestling. That's why we're here as opposed to her singing solo career. But I want her to be doing her own thing as opposed to just fretting about Jack, arguing with Jack, reminding Jack about his appointments, just because it would be a, a meteor role, I think, if she exists as an independent kind of character. I totally agree. And I will say that and see, sometimes in the in the last season, I had trouble with her in the way that you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that she was, to use the wrestling phrase, the clear baby face in their interactions. You know, I mean, right. listen, I'm all about Jack's promo in the principal's office, but I didn't come <laughs> away from their 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 parking lot conversation with any question about who was the heel and who was the baby face here, which is why right. I thought. I I can only assume this was deliberate, but when we go to the when we end up in the pre-tape promo where they're where they're charting the path forward for the DWL and Jack is playing the smarmy heel, it felt right. When you think about it, that could be a really difficult turn to make in the show. This is your protagonist, and now he's he's the bad guy. And we I know what to put on, and we all know actors, you know, this is an actor playing a role, whatever. But man, it made it easier to root against him for that <laughs> for the last kind of uh, stanza of the show. Right.
This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED highlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Anyway, just to get the storyline in order, when it's clear that Ace isn't going to show up, they 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 make this they they make a formal announcement. Or before, I guess it's totally clear he's not going to show up. They make a public announcement that they're they're stripping or they're holding up the title. They're not technically taking it away from Crystal because she or Bunny Bombshell because she didn't actually win it. She wasn't in the match at the end of season one, and they're putting Wild Bill and Jack Spade and Ace Spade in a triple threat match to determine who the new champ is. But if Ace doesn't show up, then someone else will take their place. Uh, when they do this, you know, press conference, Crystal comes out and says, you know, you can call me Crystal Tyler. It's my name, you know, whatever. And she has she has an incredible, you know, star turn again at, in that moment, makes fun of Jack, uh, talks, talks shit to Wild Bill, the whole thing. And then um, when we finally get to the event, Ace, of course, is not there. And so they open, open up the third slot to any man on the roster. And Crystal, though not a man, takes them up on it, kind of talks her way into the match uh, and, and emerges victorious in the end by climbing a, uh, well, it's a variation on a ladder match. She had a lot mm -hmm. of gymnastic climbing to do to get to the belt um, and dispatch Jack along the way. It was a big moment. Yeah. And we're going to talk to the director about how that came about shortly. But that was an impressive moment. And also the DWL has sort of upped its production values in general, I guess, uh, partly because of that equipment that Jack bought instead of uh, spending on a family vacation. But Eddie Earl now is uh, suddenly the mean Love gene Eddie. of the DWL, right? The Jack Tunney is the, Jack Tunney is the right is the point of reference. Yeah, uh -huh. like the, he said he's the what is he like the chair of the board of directors of the DWL or something <laughs> right. like that. But yeah, but he's basically just the commissioner. He can make the business side decisions. Right. And now there's there's ring commentary, which we haven't really heard that much ever been privy to. But but he's ringside. He's calling the match. And maybe this is partly Bill's. alongside alongside Ricky Rabies, a.k.a. Yes. CM Punk, who, took, exactly. who, did, who did a good bit of that himself in AEW. He's a, it's, it's, a, it's a good tandem. And maybe this is partly Bill's influence being felt here, right? Because as Jack is doing this sort of uh, out of character heel turn, he's kind of brought back to himself a little bit by Bill, who, as you said, shows up in his office and immediately it's a conflict and it's a, a war of words. But then Bill says, no, hey, I actually have something to offer you here, right? I've been in the big time. You haven't been in this chair all that long. Again, your dad's name is still on the office door in stencil, right? And for once, Jack is receptive to that input and Bill is in a frame of mind where he is able to offer that input and seemingly has some things to, to teach Jack. So 
it is kind of a, a collaborative exercise here. And Bill, for all his faults and flaws, he has been instrumental in giving Crystal a push, right? By mm-hmm. elevating her to the valet role, by pumping her up, encouraging her to take what's hers, and now seemingly also talking Jack into letting her defend her title and, and claim it for real. Yeah. Okay, so Jack basically says the title, you know, we're going to hold up, hold the title. And by the way, they use the term in abeyance, which is, there's a lot of winks for the <laughs> wrestling crowd. That was a very, it's a very specific point in wrestling history that that was the, that's a, that's a nod to, but this is a great show as a wrestling fan. The other one, by the way, is during that main event match when Crystal puts, does a move called the cutter, which has been called many different things, but it's just a very incredibly popular move in AEW and WWE and on the indies and stuff. And, and CM Punk on commentary says, the kids call that a cutter these days, I think. And, and it was, it was, um, that was a good one. But anyway, there's a lot in the show about the company evolving, like before our eyes. Like that's what you're getting at with the, with, you know, the production values are going up, putting Crystal over. Actually, just in wrestling, you know, just in terms of wrestling history, Crystal going from her gimmick name to her real name is a, like a very specific moment in time in the 90s when wrestlers, when, you know, now we all know enough. We don't need to be fooled you know we don't need to this doesn't need to be that degree of a put on we see a lot of evolution happening in real time which i think is you know a good thing for the company we saw very little of the competition this week we did they the uh the the promos existed sort of in the ether that they were reacting to Mm -hmm. charlie gully the the promoter of of uh florida what's it called again Florida, Florida wrestling dystopian, <laughs> yeah, dystopia, <laughs> right? <laughs> Florida wrestling dystopia. Uh, with you know, was cutting promos online. We talked about that last week, and they and they um, they made a big impact, even in the locker, even in the DW uh, locker room. So that was a big part of. It. We saw them reacting to the to the press conference too, and you know, they're they're, they're a little bit there, but but it, you know, they they weren't a huge presence. But anyway, what do you think, Jack's? Mo- when Jack came in and took the title away from Crystal. Early in the episode, what do you think his plan was at that point? And so much as he had one. Well, he's telling himself that they're going to step back a bit so they can build it into an even bigger crescendo. Right. We're Mm -hmm. just going to rewind a little bit and then we will milk this. Right. I mean, Crystal's a, a popular character. Clearly, her story has resonated with the audience. And so if you DQ her on this technicality, maybe that engenders even more sympathy then you take your time to build her back up again instead of just having her kind of crash the party in that match as well as Mm -hmm. that worked out. I think that's probably part of it. Maybe also part of it is just his own ego as the person who's scripting these events. I mean, he's clearly grateful to Crystal for the way she stepped in. And you could tell when, when he thanks everyone for their role in the fair. I think he's absolutely being sincere there where he compliments Crystal. But bit by bit all along, both him and Willie, they've needed to be convinced or have their arm twisted. They didn't see Crystal as a wrestler. They saw her as someone who's sort of backstage behind the scenes, a super fan just in the stands, and then a valet, and now a DWL contract as a wrestler, with Jack, I think, sees as I'm doing her a favor here, or this is a, a magnanimous gesture on my part. And Crystal's thinking, I saved your ass at the fair, right? You had no ending to that match. And so I think part of it is just, uh, hey, you have to know your place and know your role. And I'm the one who decides, right? And you can't come in and claim this belt for yourself if I didn't decide that you were going to get it. So you can get it in your own time. I think there's a little bit of that, that he has to be talked off that ledge. 
it does seem like that the way the show, the story actually played out lines up with what he said. We're going to have to rewind a little bit, mm -hmm. right? And, and and that's, I think, you know, what you're getting at. It's interesting. It's, 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 it's getting, you know, it's, a going, it's an ongoing question like you laid out about how much he faith he's going to have in Crystal. And as Willie explains to Crystal's face, you know, she's got a lot more to prove before that kind of mantle can be put on her. But it, it'll be interesting to see how that goes as we move forward, because now we're just more formally in the place we were when the show, when the season started, you know, two episodes ago. Crystal's your champ. And they got to write the story to make it to make it exciting now. Yeah. And even though she's fully elevated to the wrestler role now, you know, she's uh, still subjected to some some sexist jokes. I mean, maybe part of that is just some good natured ribbing. It's just, hey, you're you're one of the boys at this point. Mm -hmm. Right. We all make fun of each other. I did want to ask you just about the mechanics of a male versus female match like this, which we will talk about how that was filmed with Pete. But you have a, a mismatch here physically because DWL does not have a women's division, right? Crystal mm -hmm. is on an island for now. We suspect that's going to change as AJ Mendez comes in to mm -hmm. appear on the show. But for now, she's going up against Jack. Now, maybe that's not so different physically from, I don't know, Rooster wrestling Diego or Apocalypse, let's say. But when that happens in real life, what kind of accommodations have to be made or how does that change sort of the the mechanics in ring? It's an incredibly interesting question because while there are definitely examples in WWE, for instance, of intergender matches like China wrestled men, you know, there have been there have been a number of them. It's also seen as a sort of line that they don't cross. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're, and there's lots of examples of male on female violence. I mean, Stone Cold Steve Austin stunned women, you know, people of the Dudley boys put may young through a table you know like these things have happened but just in terms of like a one-on-one -on -one man versus woman match it, people are just very reluctant to go with that in the in the uh, in, inside wwe but it is a real reality in indie wrestling in no small part because there's not always a lot of women for the women to wrestle and they're and they're you know especially in the past decade or two been a lot of very talented female wrestlers out there without uh, a lot of competition. And, and so there's a lot, of, I mean, there's a long history of intergender matches, uh, in, in just in the modern era, a lot of really incredible matches mm -hmm. and they're incredibly popular in lots of different demographics. But, uh, in terms of accommodations, um, it's not a lot. It's not, it's probably not as much as you'd think. Uh, once you get past the sort of, I guess, baseline concern of hurting somebody, then mm -hmm. it's all sort of the same. I mean, there's wrestlers who have famously, had sort of like comedy matches against blow up dolls and 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 children and and you know just brooms whatever like mm -hmm. a wrestler can wrestle against anything, uh, and that's sort of what that's sort of part of the inherent joke. So they can you know they they generally make it work. There's obviously a lot of the there there are a lot of things that you do in the ring that require the strength of both parties, but there's plenty of stuff you can do that sort of you know leverage one person more than the other. I did want to mention. By the way, since I mentioned uh, Pac, played by James Harrison, he's been absent from this season so far, oh, yeah. which was a, a little jarring. Last week, I thought maybe that was just because we were in a flashback and perhaps at that point in the timeline, his character was still struggling with substance issues or in rehab or something. But here he's gone again and Diego references him being AWOL, which is Unlike him, as far as we know, that character, right? He's uh, sort of the stalwart. He's like, trust Jack and believe in the DWL, and they believed in me. So from what we understand and have gathered, he is not necessarily off the series permanently, Harrison, that is, that there is uh, some hope potentially for him to return 
And I hope he does, because I enjoyed that character and I enjoyed Harrison's work as that character. And I guess we have Big Jim sort of stepping back into the ring in his mm-hmm. stead. We haven't really heard how that has gone down in, in his house. And then, of course, we have the dad. Don't want to neglect the new addition to God, the roster. Love the dad. <laughs> love the dad, too. As dads ourselves, of course, we identify. Well, if you want to, if you want to just write off the Big Jim thing, I mean, it's just like sometimes when... When what you're doing, you know, is is not very popular, it's a lot easier for someone to say, you know, let's not be a part of that anymore. But mm-hmm. yeah, then all of a sudden people are yeah. asking and, you know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe your husband should be out there doing it again. Sure. So just to put a bow on this. We end with uh, Crystal reclaiming the title. Jack is um, kind of bo- so so Ace falls off the mountain, then. <laughs> There's a sequence with J- a brief scene of Jack in in the back, and then we're back to Ace lying on the the whatever the cliff and screaming for help. But in the middle, we have Jack after Crystal wins the title, and oh, and 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 someone comes in and says, "We didn't need Ace after all. Mm-hmm. We have Crystal Mania now." Yeah, and Jack Debbie. looks. Oh, that Debbie, of course. I'm going to remember her name. She's the highlight of every episode this season. <laughs> and Jack looks troubled. But yeah. now he could be troubled because he has no idea where his brother is. Mm-hmm. That's definitely part of it. <laughs> Do we think there's an element to which he's uncomfortable with the direction that he's plotted the, the company to go in? Probably, because, again, it, it wasn't entirely his decision to plot it that way. He is mm-hmm. just rolling with the punches again, kind of literally and uh, making the best of what he has. But he left one of his many voicemails for Ace just 10 minutes before that match saying, hey, if you get this, you know, just slip in the side door, right? Like he's literally leaving the door open for Ace at any time. And True. because his father's last words to him via that letter were take care of Ace and he feels like he is derelict in that duty, which to be fair, he has been. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He doesn't know where his brother is and he wants to make his brother a a part of what he's building. He wants to make this a family fair. So I think he does feel that absence. Obviously, he wants the, the DWL to succeed however it happens, but I think he would prefer for Ace to be a big part of that. Yeah. I think so too. Well, let's hand out our, uh, our our awards, our categories, and and uh, we'll wrap up. See if we missed anything. First category of the week: the world champ. Who is the MVP of this episode of Heels? I was conflicted about this one. I mm-hmm. I considered Willie. I considered Wild Bill, who's not quite so wild. He's a little bit better behaved. Bill, granted, it's mm-hmm. it's been a, a whole day since he crapped his pants. So I'm not saying he's a, a new man, but maybe he's found love here, turned over a new leaf. But I think you got to hand it to Crystal. That's uh, who I'm going to go with here for seizing the spotlights for the second consecutive episode, but now seizing it in a, a lasting way. Yeah, I thought about Jack, too, because he's always going to be such a center of attention. But he 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 journeyed a long way over the course of this episode. Like you said, he had to shift into a bunch of different personalities to make this episode work. But I thought Crystal did that in this, in, in less screen time just as well. Uh, to me, the most one of the most compelling moments is when she goes backstage to complain or follows Jack out after he says they're going to hold the title up and she follows him out and she says, you're going to take away my title yeah. uh, on a technicality. And that is some, that is, the wrestling sickness has has fully infected her at that point. That when you're <laughs> right. referring to a fake award as yours uh, it, to to score porn, points in an argument, 
that's when you're a wrestler. It's not <laughs> when you go in there and you take the bump. <laughs> it's when the ego overtakes you. <laughs> right. But she, but that was great. And then, you know, her, her interaction with Willie, she seemed to sort of really understand what was going on. And, and, uh, and then in the press conference, code shifting from, you know, Bunny Bombshell to Crystal Tyler sort of right there in mm-hmm. front of us, you know, and, and, and uh, just in terms of an acting performance, having to sort of portray someone, portraying someone, portraying someone, this is like three degrees deep, right? And it's, it was incredibly effective and, and impressive too. Yeah. And then, of course, the big main event match where she got to right. just yeah, show the, off her, her the physicality required yeah. in that match alone. <laughs> so, yeah, she's the standout for me here in a, a week of, of many possible standouts. Jack, I'm, I'm hopeful for more. You know, Willie, you do look at it and say, like, this could be her biggest episode of the season, you know, and, and so certainly she's deserving of some attention. But but mm-hmm. I don't think she was she wasn't the world champ this week. Mm-hmm. All right. The main event. What was this episode of the show about? The journey is the obstacle. There's the title of the episode. The, the the phrase is taken from a like a motivational speaker on the radio that Ace is listening to as he's driving down the road. The line specifically is, it's your problem, basically, if you're making a foolish journey, if you're trying to make a foolish journey seem meaningful, your journey is the problem, right? It's like you're doing it's like if you're if you're looking for meaning in life, maybe what you're doing is absent of meaning. Uh, and you seem to be inspired by it. Mm-hmm. How do we yeah. write that into the show? Is that what this episode's about? <laughs> He's uh, even expanding his vocabulary, thanks to Siri. Yes, uh-huh. it's a, a transcendent moment. But yeah, I, I think for me, the main event, uh, it's tough to top. I mean, Crystal's going to sweep these categories, I guess, but mm-hmm. tough to top her performance in that match and uh, climbing the ranks of the wrestlers and also ascending to the rafters almost of the dome. Just the choreography of that scene, I think, uh, kind of took the cake here. You know, uh, we could talk about whether the holy shit moment is different the next category. I mean, for me, that was certainly a holy shit moment. Also just the plummet, the fall at the end was maybe more of a holy shit, you know, just so that we can differentiate between these categories because sometimes the main event and the holy shit moment can be the same moment. Well, they certainly can. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, this episode was about highs and lows, you know? I mean, you saw every, like, just in 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 one hour where, you know, Crystal went all the way up and all the way down and all the way back up again. Mm -hmm. You saw that, you know, in Jack's life too. Well, you can also see it as, you know, the rise of DWL. They're selling out houses compared to where they used to be. And they're on top. Crystal Mania is on top. And I mean, in a very literal low, Ace is lying at the bottom of a ravine. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right. The main event was was Crystal winning. And I think we might look back and say, maybe more significantly was Jack's reaction afterwards. Yeah. But I think that was the, that was the big moment. But I agree, just to, to sidestep right in the next category, the holy shit moment was Ace falling off the cliff because it obviously asks a, bit, a lot of questions. You know, where, where are we going to go from here? Right. But some of the questions it asked are really good ones. You know, like if he had been driving to see Charlie Gully and to try to sell out and join the competition, that, that would have been intriguing, but that would have been a little bit paint by numbers. You know, if he had been, even if he'd taken all of his, whatever, the crown out to a field and set it on fire, whatever he could have done, that could have been mm-hmm. obvious. We certainly weren't expecting him to fall off a cliff. Yeah. 
I, I, I assume there's some personal significance to this setting, to this Dover Springs wilderness area. Maybe we'll we'll get a flashback in a future episode that will clarify that for us. Was there some family outing to this area that uh, he is trying to recreate or retrace those steps? Is he going to cast away this crown in some significant portion of this park to kind of put that behind him? But now, of course, not only is he far from the ring, but he is perhaps incapacitated as a wrestler for the foreseeable future. So even if he wanted to come back at this point, it's not clear that he would be physically capable in the near this future. This isn't going to be a Friday Night Lights thing where he's in a wheelchair for the rest of the series, right? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Yeah, that would that would probably put a bit of a, a crimp in, in his current wrestling career. But yeah, it seems like it's at least going to take some rest and rehab, uh, assuming that he is rescued, that someone comes across him and airlifts him out of there. Yeah. Uh, the gimmick. What was your favorite? Uh, what, what was your small choice that made you happy this week? There were a few that were ace related, actually. I'll give him a little credit just because he was uh, on this odyssey and then plummeting at the end of the episode. A few things I enjoyed. First of all, in his defense. Now, I'm I'm not a camping expert either. I'm a city kid, but I thought the raincoat question was defensible. There, there are different degrees of water resistance when it comes to raincoats. There's waterproof, there's water resistance. They at least try to put it over that way, right? When you right. go shopping for a raincoat, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he's a little out of his uh, element, clearly. But I that whole, enjoyed... That whole scene wins the award for me. I mean, that's yeah. just amazing. <laughs> that was good. I What I really loved, I think, was uh, that he took his Xbox line that was repeated a few times right over by, and over again by their mother when he tells stacy that it's like oh now this is serious he took his xbox right which i could identify with as someone who has traveled with a console before or who has felt the physical absence of a console on a long trip i don't totally understand how he intends to use the xbox while he's sleeping under the stars maybe it just makes him happy to have it by his side but that sort of that's when they know, oh, this is not a, a day trip. He's gone for a while, which I think reminds us that he is kind of a kid. He's kind of immature. Not that there's anything immature about playing Xbox. No. I play Xbox, but <laughs> just that that's the, the giveaway and the signal to everyone that this is serious. You know, as the guy in the diner says, you're a little old for a runaway, but mm -hmm. there's there's still a, a little kid these guys, even Jack, who's uh, the elder and the more mature of the pair, not uh, totally capable of managing his own affairs and handling the shared Google Docs in this episode. So that was the line, I think, for me that that really stood out. I uh, also enjoyed him getting into a conflict with the guy at the gas station, you know, because yeah. he, he can get a, in a fight over anything and everything. So he only gets to pee for five seconds before the guy shows up with the bat, which is definitely not for Coke's worth. <laughs> um, and, That's great. And just two jack things. Also wanted to defend him, meant to mention this when we were talking about the school meeting earlier. The comment about the school shooting was a little out of line, you know. Totally uh, out of line. Totally Jack, out of line. Jack was out of line as well, but uh, I don't think we can we can conflate what he was saying with uh, endorsing school shootings. But I did also want to give some credit to just that moment when he's brushing his teeth in the truck on his mm -hmm. way to work, and you see the the toothpaste just splatter on the side of the truck. It's like, all right, things aren't going great for Jack right now. My favorite Jack delivery of the episode was when he was talking to his mom, who, if you want to talk about lovely small things, was mailing a box of rocks. <laughs> yeah. Well, just watch the episode to understand. It was right. it was incredible. But she's, 
He says he's looking for Ace, and she says he's gone, Jack. And Jack, inimitable, so put on Southern drawl, says, you make that sound ominous. You know, it was just, <laughs> it was so great. Yeah. There was so many things you could point to in this one. I actually thought Wild Bill's interaction with um, Constance from the State Fair post-hotel uh, post hookup yeah. was just incredibly lovelily handled yeah, like they it were was, they, it was sweet tender it yeah. was sweet and tender and like you know not not unbody but like without the the sort of like broad strokes that you might expect from such a situation shows yeah. i think wild bill's evolution as a person but also just it, it shows what a show like this can do with this kind of content it's not too over the top i mean not too on the nose i guess not too obvious uh that was really good there's a million in this one but i'm going to give it to the to the dude in the in the camping store. <laughs> Good call. We got to get out of here. Uh, are there any angles we haven't touched? Any any spinning forward stuff that we should point out? I mean, we got a man, we got a brother at the bottom of a hole, and we have <laughs> uh, a brother who's who's contemplating the future. Uh, yeah. What else do we need to think about for next week? Yeah, I think we hit the headlines here, but a lot of plates are are spinning. <laughs> the DWL is hanging by a thread, as Jack has said. That seems to be a perpetual state of affairs. But right now. Ace is uh, not even hanging by a thread. The thread has snapped. All right. Well, uh, we're going to go right now to Pete Siegel, the director of this episode of Heels. And uh, I think you're going to like what he has to say. And now we are joined by the director of episode two, as well as uh, many episodes from season one. And I think uh, several episodes to come in season two. Pete Siegel, welcome uh, to the Ringer Wrestling Show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Really good to have you. Obviously, you know, when I talked to the folks at Stars, it was a little bit, uh, we asked them who we could talk to and there's some strikes going on or whatever. And But they said, you got to talk to Pete because Pete is uh, such a huge part of what we do. And Ben and I are both giant fans of the show, but fans of sort of the aesthetic of the show, the way that the, the show looked, we wouldn't just be watching the show if it were just for the script, obviously. So uh, I guess we'll say we're huge fans of you. Oh, well, thank Appreciate that. When you're talking to people and you're telling them you're knee deep in directing multiple episodes of the TV show Heels, how do you pitch the show to people that don't know about it? Well, I I used to bring up a reference, The Dresser, which was a, a movie with Albert Finney and Tom Conti. You know, not not I'm not going to win a lot of fans by mentioning that, but what was cool about that movie was that it was life behind the scenes of two theater actors or a theater actor and his dresser. And what I thought was fascinating about it was the egos, the, the bruised egos, the desire for better lines, competition with other actors. And I, and for some reason, that is what resonated with me when I first read the script, going behind the scenes uh, in a professional wrestling company. That was more fascinating than the action in the ring. What was the, the, the drama behind the scenes? And the show had sort of a distinctive look and, and feel and sound from the start, I think. So was there a certain aesthetic you were going for, certain touchstones you had in mind? And how has that evolved as the show has progressed, as we've gotten into the second season? What have you learned about Making Heels? Well, about three years ago, we started scouting with the creator, Michael Waldron and Michael Malley. And we first went to um, Wilmington. North Carolina, and tried to find this world. When we went to Georgia, though, uh, even though it's a fictitious town, that was the world. And why, why try to fake it in another state? We just said, we're, we're home here. Let's, 
let's make the town of Duffy a character in this show. And so it became an amalgamation of two different towns, Lithonia and Palmetto, Georgia. And we spent a lot of time. Um, Jeffrey Brad Gordon is a fantastic production designer. Larry Blanford, my cinematographer. And we really spent a lot of time looking for this world to create this character. I was seeing a lot of places for the dome that, I, that just weren't gelling, weren't cool enough, didn't have enough character. And then one day, I kind of broke off my leash <laughs> and went running across this field. And I said, what about that over there? We were in a, a rail yard. And, uh, you know, uh, my line producer said, no, 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 because it would have been expensive. And we went, I went into this um, dilapidated rail repair yard building that was falling apart, shards of glass all over the floor, graffiti. And I said, this is it. This is the dome. And I started uh, photographing it and I uh, <laughs> immediately texted it back to the head of the studio at Lionsgate and Star saying, I found it. And they said, fantastic. And then you know, uh, I, uh, the line producer knew that we were screwed because <laughs> now we couldn't shoot there. So we had to build it. And it actually became one of the most expensive sets of my entire career, um, movies included. And Jeffrey did a fantastic job. And from there, we just sort of, you know, branched out and, and found Carol's home and uh, Jack's home. And it was all in the same area. And suddenly the the show had a real personality and, and, and an authenticity. You mentioned some of the movies you've done. You have a long career of absolute amazing films. Um, a, a Tommy Boy, I'm sure a lot of people will recognize. Naked Gun 33 and the Third, uh, one of my personal favorites. The Longest Yard, Fifty First Dates. There's a lot of comedy on your resume. There's a lot of humor in, in heels, but it's, it's all sort of subdermal. You know, I mean, it's, or, it's, you know, there'll be some, some wisecracks or whatever, but it's, it's, it's situational in the, in the sort of broadest sense. Do you consider Heels a funny show? I mean, and do you, is, is comedy like a, a core part of what you do? Do you, do you think you help bring some of that out? Yeah, I, I'd like to think so. Um, and Mike O'Malley, uh, who's the showrunner, he and I have known each other for over 10 years. And we met uh, on a pilot that he did. But at the time, he was working with John Wells on Shameless. And Shameless is arguably was a comedy. They tried to put themselves in a comedy category. I found it more dramatic. And that relationship that began with myself and Mike transitioned into Survivor's Remorse, which was a drama D, which then transitioned into this. And I think uh, I love this world. Um, I love the dramatic world, but I think what makes it come alive is that there's a sense of humor. And Mike, who is a, a comedian at heart and obviously an accomplished actor as well as a writer, uh, relishes that combination of tone, dramatic and comedic. I think all good dramas have humor, a sense of humor. I think if you take yourself too seriously, it's just, it becomes a little self-indulgent and dull. And uh, so we definitely look in the casting process to find people who had that little glint in their eye, you know, that knew where the joke was and can sniff them out like truffles. And I think it's fun to just sort of pepper that throughout this, uh, this saga. You've done a boxing movie. You directed Grudge Match. There's a little less of a cinematic tradition when it comes to the wrestling movie than the boxing movie. But did you want to mirror the look and feel of a wrestling broadcast, especially when you're in the ring? 
Or did you want to put a spin on it that was a little bit original? How much did you sort of want to mirror the way that people are used to consuming wrestling or do something different? Well, I wanted to be very authentic to the format. We knew when we were casting that we wanted to get people who were athletic. Obviously, Amel and Xander were already on board. And that was a gift because I didn't have to do tricks and shoot backs of stunt people and then just close-ups of faces just to cater to people who were good-looking but not athletic. These guys are the real deal, and they made my life so much easier because I could, you know, if you look at some of the great musicals of the MGM era, you know, it's wide shots, head to toe so that you can see what's going on. You don't have to have a close-up of Fred Astaire's face or Ginger Rogers. You want to see their whole body. The same way in wrestling. These guys are flipping off the top turnbuckle. We want to see it. And so um, I was a fan of wrestling, and I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of professional wrestlers from Dave Batista, obviously, who I'm still working with, to Dwayne Johnson, to Stone Cold, to the great Kali, Bill Goldberg, etc. Kevin Nash. And, you know, I wanted to honor those guys and honor the form. And so I wanted it to look real. We, we hired um, a great uh, stunt coordinator, Artie Maleshi, and a great um, wrestling coordinator in Luke Hawks. We were going about, you know, making this real. We didn't want to, you know, have all this great drama and all this great writing against the backdrop of cheesy, you know, athleticism. So um, I wanted to do that. And, you know, having the experience of working with uh, Stallone and De Niro on Grudge Match at least taught me a lot about piecing a fight together, piecing a match together, because you have to be careful about injuries. And ironically, as, as you may well know, um, Amel broke his back during, you know, a stunts in season one. And so it is, it is dangerous. Um, James Harrison told me later after he took a, a hard uh, bump and flipped over the top turnbuckle out. He landed without bending his knees. And he said he had to have stem cell treatment. This is a, you know, Pittsburgh Steeler future Hall of Famer. And uh, he got hurt. So there's, uh, there's danger in, in doing it this way and going for the realism. But I think that's what you get with this show. It, it doesn't look fake. You mentioned working with Stallone years ago. Uh, he made his own wrestling movie called Paradise Alley. I don't know if you've seen it. It's kind of a, a lost classic of the genre. One of the things that sticks out when you watch it, though, as a wrestling fan, is it's never quite clear that Stallone understands that wrestling is not on the level, or at least that's the premise, the way the movie's presented. It made me wonder, though, about the way that Heels gets produced. Are, are there any lines that you don't cross because of the legacy of wrestling, the line between what's real and what's real? Are there, are, are there, are there any third rails of, uh, of pulling back the curtain that, that you guys are ever worried about? Not really. I, I would say if we were doing a show about magic, you might, you know, yeah. want to do that and, and avoid certain things. But, you know, we're relishing. People know uh, what's, you know, kayfabe, what we're, what we're pretending to uphold, uh, what we're not. And, and I think we're, we're going in very honestly saying, okay, you know this world. Here's how it got here appreciate the writer in Jack Spade, appreciate the players. We're not pretending that it's real, but that's why in season one, what was cool is we went off book a couple of times in the pilot and then in the finale. We know we can't keep doing that, but that's where drama really took over and, and you know, told the audience, okay, 
you know this is scripted, but guess what? Right now, they threw that script out and they're killing each other. You know, so the challenge now is to come up with what are the surprises? You know, what are the things that keep people intrigued, you know, about our storytelling so they don't say, well, I know how this is going to end. So-and-so is going to win. So uh, hurry up and I'll just keep checking my watch. No, it's like, what is compelling about each match? What story are we telling? Something I learned in The Longest Yard is every play is a story. There's a protagonist, an antagonist. And in the coverage, you want to not only cover what's on the field or in the ring, but you want to cover the reaction shots. Who is this affecting? Pro and con, each move and each story. And that's how you tell the whole story. There's, there's multiple cuts in the editing of a wrestling sequence. Uh, it's, it's not just like watching WWE. You've got to cut away to the people that are being affected by it. And that's what separates us from watching a live broadcast. We've been talking mostly about the matches. I wanted to ask you about the promos because you direct the DWL promos in a sense, but you direct them presumably in the style of the DWL's directors. You're kind of in character in those scenes in a yes. way. So. How would you grade, I guess it was Diego's camera work in episode two of season two or Willie's last season? What would you do differently if Jack Spade hired you to document the DWL? <laughs> well, first of all, Jack Spade could not afford me. So let's <laughs> go right there. Or, or a proper crew. Right. I like that you can identify with uh, his his stresses about the upkeep on the dome because uh, that was a stress for you as well. <laughs> but, exactly. And, yeah. um, you know, I didn't want these promos to be too slick. You know, I wanted them to be believable within his world. I mean, we spent a lot of time in, in the first season showing that he could not afford proper cameras. He could not afford you know, fog machines that worked properly. And so, uh, and he overspent and he got in trouble, you know, with Stacy. But with that, you know, we wanted to keep that same kind of guerrilla filmmaking, not too polished kind of feel to these things. And I think, you know, that again, that's part of the charm of these guys looking up towards AEW and WWE, but not being there yet. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the polish you know, that a Vince McMahon has. And so to capture that and, and have people still enjoy the content of what is being, you know, photographed on their cell phones, um, but realizing still that we are in Duffy, you know, we're not in the big cities. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more to find coupons and start an instant online estimate. 
visit jiffylube.com. Season two, episode two ends um, with both of the of the brothers uh, on their backs, more uh, metaphorically and literally. Jack has just lost in his championship match, and boy, was that great. Uh, and Ace is is at the bottom of a ravine. Um, I guess two questions: one, is there a difference in the in the in the in the philosophy of filming an in ring bump versus a, a fall from a cliff in terms of <laughs> physical impact? Um, actually, I'll just let you take that one first. Well, we have some great stunt people, but that kind of stunt falling off a cliff, which was pretty involved, is different than taking a bump. Some of our stunt guys needed to learn wrestling, and definitely some of our wrestlers needed to learn stunts, and they're, they're different. That, though, we had to build. Okay, first of all, we went to an actual gorge up in um, northern Georgia, an 800-foot cliff we actually had to cut away the metal guardrail that says, please do not step over this rail. We had to cut it away. And I am not very good with heights. So I really was scared shitless going near the edge of that cliff. And when we had um, Xander up there, we had to cable him in because so, there were a few shots that we didn't want to fake it. We wanted to have him at the top of this cliff. That is not my cup of tea. Uh, but when it came to the actual fall, we couldn't really fall off this cliff because it was um, kind of made of a not hard surface rock, but it was shale and it would fall away and crumble. And so it was very, very dangerous. So we built a four-story cliff. We had some establishing shots in this real uh, gorge in a national park and the actual fall uh, we built. And, um, you know, there's a lot of cable work involved and, you know, we didn't want it to be a, a straight fall. So, you know, the stunt man had to bounce off this branch and then hit that, what we call the surfboard with that outcropping of the cliff where he was going to lie until what happens next uh, episode. And we sh to shoot it at night, you know, both things uh, with drones, with massive muscos to, you know, light up the world. Um, it was it was pretty involved. That's just an example of how the things that happen outside the ring are sort of balanced against the things that are happening, the action in the in the arena and in the ring in a, in a more general sense. The, the in ring stuff, especially when you're telling a story uh, in this in the in the show in the ring is is it's a lot to to live up to when you're trying to, you know, have a conversation in a parking lot. What 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 do you have a philosophy about how to really keep the folk the spotlight on the relationship conversations that are going on when they're when they're juxtaposed against this more bombastic stuff well there are conversations going on both out of the ring in the locker room people watching you know willie and whoever else the monitor but also there are conversations going on in the ring and that's a big part of wrestling you know you are not an opponent you are both teammates you have to help each other uh, in a match so th there are both those conversations. And I think that's a really cool aspect of, of, you know, telling these stories is the choreography of conversation in the ring while conversation out of the ring is going while conversations are going on in the audience. You know, that's the fun of editing these things. And uh, it, it hasn't been easy shooting this show in our massive dome set during the pandemic when the place seats uh, 700 but we only get 100 extras and we have to make them look like 700 by doing tiling, what it's called, visual effects where we take them and we move them around. 
So there's, there's a lot of choreography uh, that goes on, not just athletic choreography, but all of these conversations at once as well. Let's talk about that set piece of a match between Crystal and Jack here. Crystal is such an acrobatic wrestler, high flying more so than ever in this particular episode. Can you tell us how that comes together, whether it's Kelly Berglund and her contributions, any stunt doubles who are involved here? You talked about the importance of wanting to show all of the action and the entire body. So what has to happen in order for Crystal to, I guess, Eddie Earl comps her to Nadia Comaneci in this match. Right. I mean, to me, it reminds me of the martial arts expert who fights Bill Hader in the second season of Barry. It's just almost unnaturally gravity-defying. So yeah. how do you translate this to the screen? Well, the interesting thing is, uh, again, as I mentioned before, Amel is such a great athlete and such a student of wrestling that he does a lot of his own stunts. There was only one moment in that match that he couldn't do because of his uh, previous uh, broken back injury from uh, the year before. But Kelly, coming into this season, uh, really upped her game. She worked out hard in the first season, but she you know, got bit by the bug, especially. you know, Those were real tears you know, at the end of last season, at the top of the ladder in the state fair and she really wanted to kick ass in the off season and get in shape and uh she really did and so all that does is that again allows me not to have to edit as much when i'm photographing these guys in their match sure there were a couple of moments uh that we had some help but not much so then uh you know be- again because of amel's uh understanding and incredible knowledge of of the sport the art he had a lot of input at the last minute that he said hey i don't feel this is right i think we should may i please i'd like to try this what about this what about this what about this and the day before it was almost a completely new wrestling script and for a big match and i was like uh well that's a lot of new stuff and kelly hasn't rehearsed any of this so we're just going to go piece by piece so I sat there, you know, uh, we would, you know, beat out each move, each moment it was on a big board, a white erase board, a dry erase board. And um, we'd go until the actor said, I got to stop. Either they're tired or I got to set up uh, or I need a beat, you know, before we formulate and we go into the next round. And Kelly just stood toe to toe with him and kept right up. You know, again, learning this on the longest yard where I would get a little freaked out saying, okay, I'm now about to go in and I'm going to try to do what Fox and NBC do every week with 47 cameras. I've got two. (laughs) How the fuck am I going to do this? So um, I would watch the action in the longest yard. I had five cameras. I'd watch the action and then just say, I'm going to tell the story. Here's where I see this coming in. You know, there's an art form to directing, you know, action. You know where to put the cameras, especially if you have a, a, an experienced cinematographer. And we just went piece by piece by piece. And we went well into the night, shot till, you know, two in the morning. Amel and, and Kelly were absolutely exhausted, but we got it. And uh, it was, that was one of the hardest, but one of the coolest matches that I think I photographed in, in the first two seasons. Yeah, definitely. And I guess when there is some subterfuge involved, it's probably helpful to have a character who has long hair <laughs> so that yes, you can't yes. quite tell who's who's yes, underneath exactly. there at all times, right? But that does help. 
What about the climax of the match, the verticality of it? You're really exploring the studio space here, taking advantage of the, the dome's full airspace and not only the ladder aspect, but then the ring turns into a ropes course and she climbs over to the balcony. Was that always part of the plotting and the blocking here? Was that a late addition? Because that's a pretty ambitious set piece for the end. No, we, there's no way we could have ad-libbed that. That was right. in uh, O'Malley's original scripts. And uh, once I saw that, I thought, ooh, this is going to be fun. And, uh, you know, we choreographed that again. It, it sort of was an, a bit of an homage to the, uh, the latter moment in um, the end of season one. Uh, but this obviously, you know, had a twist. And we thought, you know, how to make this really spectacular. And, and because we were, you know, uh, when I first read the pilot, you know, three years ago, my favorite character was um, Crystal. And I loved the way season one ended. And to do something really special when we give her the chance, if we're going to give her the belt, you know, for real, let's do it. And as how do you top, you know, the state fair? And so this felt very uh, ambitious but appropriate to really launch this new character into her own orbit. Uh, Pete, we got to let you go. Really appreciate you being here. Uh, and I, I just want to know, because I hear you talking, how much of the insider wrestling lingo has crept its way into the set and into the way that you guys talk about the business? Uh, well, you have to. You know, there's a lot. And um, uh, it, it, that's great because, you know, the, the fans of the show are equally as well-versed. And so there there is a different language. I just finished a film uh, with Ken Jong, and he is such a huge fan, not only of the show, but of wrestling and talking about, um, kayfabe and, uh, everything involved. He's just so, uh, such a fan that he's just very much like, you know, the audience out there that I think, uh, enjoys this show. It's, it's authentic authenticity and it's, it's own language. If I could sneak in one more quick one, go David for and it, I go for it. David and I have praised the sound of this series, both the needle drops and the score maybe not primarily your department, but I'm sure you're intimately involved with that. Can you tell us about the process of setting these scenes to music, what you want the mix of score to needle drops to be, how you determine the specific songs? Because uh, whoever is coming to these decisions, I'm sure it's a collaborative effort, but you've all got great taste. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, Jeff Cardoni is a brilliant, uh, our brilliant composer. Uh, John Leahy is a Grammy-nominated uh, music supervisor. He provides a, a lot of the songs. Uh, I will say, um, Jack's theme, for example, his entrance music uh, was written by my son, Sean Siegel, uh, who studied everyone's uh, entrance songs. And uh, he said he kind of patterned it after Stone Cold's. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're very proud of that. And to the point where um, stars at one point said, hey, can you put some lyrics to this too? And uh, John brought in a great lyricist and um, vocalist, I should say, and or both, and um, kind of really brought that to life. So every time I see that, I see guys in in the in the crowd, you know, extras kind of like banging their head, and I'm like going, "Yeah, okay, it's kind of cool." That's great. Well, Pete, thank you so much for doing this. Um, we're going to have you back on later in the season. Uh, we have so many more questions for you, but uh, yeah, thanks, man. You're making a show that that makes us super excited to to turn it on every week. So I uh, appreciate that. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate it. That was Pete Siegel, the director of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you as always to our producer, Jesse Lopez. Thank you to my partner, tag team partner, Ben Lindbergh. Yes. Ben, do you want to get any plugs in as we leave? 
Yeah, you could check me out on the Ringerverse feed. We'll be hosting a, a button mash video game pod before we return to talk about heels again. And we'll be covering Star Trek Strange New Worlds on the Ringerverse feed next week as well. Awesome. We'll check that out. You can find me here and everywhere across the Ringer Wrestling Show feed, also on the press box. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you guys for watching Heels and for listening to us talk about it. We will be back here next Friday in the main event. See you then. <laughs>